Open the door and come on in. Cause this is where the fun begins. You don't have to pay a penny or a dollar. So step inside Gelato's parlor. This podcast can pass the test. And you'll enjoy my special guests. Take a seat and close the door. Enjoy Mr. Ray to find out more. So let's hear you holler. Welcome to Gelato's parlor. Ray Gelato. That's me. Hey, everybody. This is Ray Gelato, and this is Gelato's Parlor. I hope you just like that theme tune, because I wrote it. It's called Gelato's Parlor, and I thought I'd have to write a personalised theme tune rather than using old uh, Ray Gelato tracks from the past. So I hope you like that one. Anyway, um, this is the second in my series of London Lives, where I talk and have a chat with just characters of London, you know, to see how they're coping in the lockdown and what they've been doing and what they've done and all that kind of thing. Um, our last one was really nice. I had the Taylor, an artist and singer-songwriter David Stevens on, and we walked around the East End of London, and that got a review from the United States of America that said it's so nice to hear uh, Lives of Londoners past and present, so that made me feel really good. Um, now, my guest on this one, uh, and I had a lovely chat with this uh, gentleman in Soho in Ham Yard, um, so forgive some of the background noise, but it, it, it is what it is, uh, is Mr. Colin Vanes. Now, Colin is a British film and Emmy-winning television producer whose credits include Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, Gangs in New York, working with the great Martin Scorsese, uh, The Young Victoria. Colin worked for Miramax Productions and is very much active and has got some wonderful new projects on the go. But before I say too much, he'll tell you everything what he's up to uh, when you listen to the podcast. Now, I really... Um uh, very grateful for you tuning into Gelato's Parlor. So what I've actually done is leave a little PayPal button on the bottom of the podcast so you can leave a little donation and it does help me keep uh, things going on these podcasts. So enjoy the chat with the lovely uh, and wonderful Colin Vaines. So I'm sitting here in Ham Yard, Soho with a very, very good friend of mine, uh, film producer, Soho resident, an all-round fantastic Soho character, uh, Colin Vaines. How are you, mate? I'm very well, Ray. Lovely to see you too. And you're a bit of a Soho character yourself, aren't you? Let's face it. I think <laughs> I think I first came across you at the when I went to the WAG Club and when you were in the Chevalier Brothers. Oh, and I used to see you. We didn't know each other then. Um, and probably if, probably if we did know each other then, we probably wouldn't remember it, as the old saying goes, right? <laughs> well, yeah, but why is that? We'd have been, we'd have been out of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, that was when we were young. I wasn't young. aware you saw the Chevalier Brothers. You yeah. actually saw that band. Now, yeah. that would have been, what were we talking, late, mid to late 80s, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wag, Wag was kind of one of my regular little places to come up to. And then I started living in Soho in the 90s. And then you and I met properly for the first time, probably outside my place in Soho. Right. And yeah. we've been meeting up and having cigars and coffee ever since. And chatting about life. And yeah. chatting about just, life. Just backing up a bit with those days, the, 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 the Wag Club and that sort of vibrant mm. lo London live scene. Mm. Um, well, I used to love the Wag Club because walking up Gerrard Street, you could see all the bands and mm -hmm. the people mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you, the band well, would yeah. play with their back to the window. Fantastic. So you'd have this panoramic view across the street. Yeah. And true, I, I loved that Wag Club. I mean, played there frequently and um, 
there was just such a vibe in those days with the with what I call the the, the live scene, and it was because uh, you know you could play anywhere from pubs to clubs to whatever. But there was something every night, something every single night, and people would make a great. We made a great living in those days without leaving London. No, I know. It, no, it's a different thing. I mean, it's like that we all moan about what Soho used to be, and I, I, I've always I've always said I think I've told you before, Ray, that when I first came up to Soho, it was in the early seventies. My sister was working on Wardour Street, and I'd come and visit her. First time I went to the Star Cafe and met the great Mario Forte there. But we always came, you know, I came up and I thought it was the most amazing place to be in. It was vibrant and alive and, uh, and, and you know, always something interesting going on. Um, but of course, when I was came up, people would say to me, oh, you should be near in the 50s. So it's kind of like now in the yeah. 20s, we kind of go, you know, you say to kids, oh, you should have been here in the 70s or whatever. But so it's more of a state of mind than anything. But there is no doubt we've lost a lot of what made Soho a lot of fun. The fact that you could go to Madame Jojo's for a fiver. <laughs> That's the motorbike in the oh, yes, Yeah, we were waiting for that motorbike to go. We just, just thought he was waiting to go. But yeah, it, it was like, it, it, it was a, a very vibrant music scene, the crazy club scene. I used to go out, when I moved into Soho in the, the 90s, I lived on Diable Street, and I'd generally, my evenings would, would start at 7.30 at night and finish at 7.30 in the morning, and I'd probably gone 100 yards, because you could literally bump into people on the street there were all the illegal drinking clubs that were still going like the one under the Venus sex shop there was kind of there were there were you know the beginnings of the new club scene with the Groucho and Soho House and places like that so it was um, yeah it was a good time you know when you just said that, that everybody sort of looks back and that, that is true but you know, I know that you're, I follow you and have for, for a while and spoke to you about it as well, obviously face to face, that you're very um, active in the Soho residence business and all this, yeah, you know, what's, yeah. what's going on. But, but, you know, I know it's a, quite an obvious question. I don't want to be cliche, but what, what are the, you know, when I basically, just to back up, again, I find it um, still a great place. There's still fantastic pockets. But it is a lot more sanitised than it was. Yeah. You, you know, and I used to like that grittiness of the... Me, me too. It's like going to New uh, York. Just when the I went change to, is what you've I, seen, you know. Like going to New York in the 80s when everyone said this is so dangerous. And it was dangerous and it was dirty and filthy around Town Square and whatever. But it was full of life. There was this sense Absolutely. of a life. Now it feels like this disney sanitised thing. And that's Absolutely. the problem with what's happened is that, you know, they're a bit... Uh, the, the Soho I knew, what the sex industry was out of control. I mean, it was absolutely everywhere, but it was kind of considered. Is that a bad thing? <laughs> <laughs> it was considered such a such a normal thing for um for, for, for you know kind of, and, and part of life, and it was part of the kind of weird fabric of, of the place and what made it sort of. Of course, you know, for a kid, it made it very exciting and interesting or whatever. I just think that the, the problem is that. It's just a simple, it's simple economics, that if people recognise that there's value in an area that they can make money out of in some way, they're going to do that. For a long time, Soho was kind of abandoned in a way. It wasn't considered a particularly well-to-do area or whatever. There was a big movement in the, the late 60s, early 70s to knock down a lot of Soho and build a lot of offices. And people like Mario from the Star Cafe 
he was fundamental in setting up the Soho Society, which fought this and stopped it from happening. And so there, would, there was going to be major development here, which would have taken out a lot of what went on just simply to build office space. Then, of course, what happened later on is that what we've been dealing with in the last 10 years or so has been actually taking offices out of Soho and then turning them into very overpriced apartments for investment from Russian, you know, Russians and Chinese yeah. investors. Who don't live here. Who don't, don't live contribute here. contribute towards the, uh, the, the, the vibe of the, uh, of the neighbourhood. So there's, so there's no sense of energy or excitement or interest ar- around it. That starts to kill things off when that happens. And then, of course, there's been this relentless thing with Crossrail 1, and now it looks like Crossrail 2 is delayed, whether that means it's finished. I mean, it's, it's so mm. expensive. But Crossrail 2 would be even more destructive than Crossrail 1 has been. But we've had to... And, and this constant rebuilding and constant building yeah. of, of crap overpriced apartments, very few Not to mention the things. noise, right, and the disruption when you're trying to sit outside somewhere and there's constant drills and constant uh, 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 guys with hard hats wandering around. I'm not knocking the guys with hard hats. They're no, just doing the they're job. They're doing their job. But, but, it, but it's the noise. And, and I mean, I noticed, because you just said that, because I've been coming here since I was a kid, I first came here with my grandfather in the front of his yeah. black cab, yeah. <laughs> cab driver. I used to sit in the front on the, holding on to the air vents without yeah. a seatbelt on. It was the times. And he, he used to say, come on, son. He says, I'm taking you up to look around Soho. We'd look around Soho. And I remember uh, Camisa and uh, Lena was still there, and we'd get a little Italian delicacy from there, and we'd wander around. Bar Italia would have been there. Bar Italia would have been there, but I only remember that from the 80s, early 80s was the first time. Yes. As a very young boy, I don't remember it, because I don't remember it. But but I I, I, I was just saying, because always, you know, playing that the, the 100 Club and other solo venues, I, I, I first saw the rots, what I call the rot setting in a way, was when Crossrail was, the day that seemed to be constructed and the, all the traffic become restricted and that top end of Dean Street was knocked down. I think it, it was, em, it, was, it, was, it, was emblematic, I don't think it started it, but it was emblematic of what was going on, that there was one particular conservative councillor who will b- remain nameless, but was called Robert Davis, <laughs> who, who was in charge of kind of planning, and and uh, he was eventually asked to move on after there were several serious investigations into um, kind of, you know, hospitality and yeah, so on yeah. from, the, from the developers. So I would say single-handedly one person caused tremendous problems for Soho by n- nodding through so many things That's that should not have been That's quite scary that one through. person could have that power. Terrifying, terrifying. Right? To do, to but it was, it was also part, and it was also a kind of a general, I'm sorry to say, I'm an old left. So it's kind of that general sense that I feel of cronyism that, that when councils veer, I mean, it can, they can veer to the left or to the right, but this sense that you look after, you know, that you've got a lot of property developer chums and, and that you look out for them and do all that, of course it's going to have some kind of effect. And, and there was a real lack, and there still is to, to a large degree, not as bad as it was. We've got, we've got some very good local councillors. I really tip my hat to them, both Tory and Labour, who are really working hard for the area now in a way we never used to have. But in general, it, it, it was a very neglected area for a long time, mm. and it was just about money for people. And the fact is, Soho is a it's, a... it's a village. And one of the things that happened in lockdown was you really felt that, that I, I felt for... When, when it really happened in March, it was really... I hate to say it, with 70,000-plus dead, I mean, terrible mismanagement by this government... 
But what was really striking was you just felt like you could reset everything. And that, that being in Soho without people with wheelie baskets, with, that, with the, the poor winos and druggies all pot, you know, piled on top of you, and without the like, endless kind of just... It, it just suddenly became a village again. And I met, like, I would see friends like yourself yeah. when you did come through, people we who live here, like, or people at work here well, all the time. see Baratalia and Litility and Ronnie's uh, um, standing there with the lights out was a terribly sad scene. I remember Very sad. That, that was, a, was, that was terrible. Awful, you know, because um, it's something that's never happened. No, that and was terrible. Not, like not even during the war, scene. probably, in a way, no, you know, in, in some ways. Definitely not in the war, because I think that it was, was remained open. So many things were, were still going. But just on a, on a, on a positive thing, so we, we was, you know, where, where's the... Where are the hubs of this place? Let, let's think about it, where, where, we, where we go and where other people go, which is still what I would call a flavour, because there's definitely still the flavour of old oh, stuff. No, totally I mean, there's my place. Let's start with him, for example, yeah, Dinny. You know. Dinny, Dinny and, and Sam. Dinny was one of the, was one of the leading uh, baristas at, at uh, Bar Italia. He was there for years, wasn't he? Yeah, it? and he wanted to have yeah. a place of his own, and, he, um, and he, he set up with his with his partner, Sam, and created a little place, my place at the top of... of uh, Berwick Street, which is on the corner, not top, but on the, the corner of... Uh, right by the Blue Post, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is, yeah, yeah. 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 And that, that's, that felt immediately like a bit of old Soho. And, of course, people gravitated there. People like Mark Powell, the tailor, and Tom Baker, yeah. the tailor, and Big you Pat. and me, <laughs> and Bernie. Yeah, yeah, Pat Perry and people like that. And Vi, Violet, yeah. who, who passed away this year on Violet, yeah, yeah. So great Soho characters, like, automatically, partly because of Dinny's sort of, like... Bar Italia heritage, but it felt a comfortable place. They got it right. It wasn't too expensive. One of the big problems that we all go on about, and it's inevitable, is that when places start to get gentrified, the prices become stupid. Yeah. And that you start, you know, and that, that and because we've lost so many of the old places that were fantastic, like the stock pot or whatever, yeah. that, that, that where you could have a cheap meal and you didn't have to kind of do that. Everything suddenly became designer hamburgers or That's whatever. Right. Or a bloody shop selling crisps. Yes. Come on. Yes. You know, yes. or, 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 or hot dogs, which <laughs> last for two months. That, that's ridiculous. I mean, these, what I call these, almost these Disney-fied themes, as you now said earlier. Got chicken, it's now chicken yeah, wings everywhere. I, I can't about, believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe it either. So, yeah, my place is great. Bar Italia Bar carries Bruno, on. though, before Bar Italia. Bar Bruno is fantastic. Because that's one of the old flavours. And, and, and you go in there and the seats are still <laughs> ripped up. I, I love it. But the, I, I love, I love the it. thing I love about Bar Bruno, which I must have been coming to since the 70s as well, is the seats seem to be the same. And also, most of the staff seem to be the same. As somebody said, all these kind of um, steel-haired gladiator <laughs> Exactly. How do they do, right? How do they do the extensive menu like that? They do everything from Sicilian arancini to chicken pie to pasta, and everything I've had there is good. It's and they, really burn, good. they burn my bacon as well because I ask them to. I says, please burn it. You know, they, the, the chicken, the freshly made chicken pies that they, they do there, the homemade pies, with chips, or if you want that with mm. mash and stuff. No, it's that's real old school. That's the last real old school place. And I have to say, because I haven't been going inside to eat, even when we've sort of like been semi lockdown lifted I'm too much of a snowflake I'm too worried and too I read it again today I read a friend of mine I had no idea died at 59 got Covid last the week before last dead within a week I, fuck I, me I, I just me. read the same thing about I, don't know, I just read the same thing about it's not a clean show I just read the same <laughs> thing about a musician I don't know him but somebody a, a colleague of a colleague in his 50s has, has, has died so, I mean, so I'm so being awful. really careful until I know that I can be mm. kind of injected and vaccined and all the rest of it I don't really want to go inside anywhere 
longer. And one of the things I missed, I realised the other day, was I wasn't missing, you know, kind of the, the fancy clubs or restaurants or bars. I missed Bar Bruno and sitting Bar down Bruno. on those crappy and old seats and things, having yeah. liver yeah, and bacon. Plastic seats that look like someone slashed them with, with a uh, Stanley. But then moving on from, from Bruno, obviously Bar Italia, you know, that is again to me somewhere that's, that's not really changed. The, 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 the coffee's the same and, it's, and the whole thing is great. And the Pelletri family, Anthony and yeah, they're still a great atmosphere yeah, since you know. 1949 and the floor is still the original floor that was laid laid by the Italian artisan yeah the mosaic as I mentioned earlier at the beginning of this uh, you know you're a successful well known and very respected film producer you and I one thing we do when we meet is always talk about films. I take your recommendations and, and uh, you know, we, we, we speak. But, you know, how did you get into Because I read you were a journalist. Yes, I was. I, 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 basically, when I was a kid, I was obsessed about films. When I was five, my I walked past a poster for Jason and the Argonauts and said to my mum, I want to go and see that. No idea why. Anyway, saw that film. Still one of my favourite films. It was me too, with the dancing, with the, the skeletons. skeletons yeah. the and it still, skeletons. Looks, still looks scary. Still looks yeah. great. Great score by Bernard Herman. All these great things I discovered later on about it. Then when I was 10 at school, our English teacher read us a book that was actually a novelisation we didn't know, and it was actually the novelisation of A Matter of Life and Death, the Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger film with David Niven in it. And, I, and he hired a print of the film at the end of term and that was, really was my road to Damascus uh, moment. It's still my favourite film of all time. It's one of it's, mine too. Because it's beautiful and it's romantic and it's funny it. and yeah. the use of colour is great, the use of monochrome is great. Anyway, it's a great, great, great movie. And I thought that's what I want to do the rest of my life so that was combined with the fact that my best friend's father was a journalist quite a famous journalist called Jim Nicholson who wrote for a lot, lot of papers like the Daily Sketch things like that papers long gone and Jim was the crime reporter for, uh, for, for these papers they nicknamed him the Prince of Darkness <laughs> and he was always travelling and going off and going away to glamorous places all from my little suburb where I lived Shirley in Croydon and I thought that guy's so cool if I could do what he did I could write about films so that was the thought at 11 years old in my head so I left school early I went 17 I left school at 18 I trained as a journalist and at 19 I got a job on the trade paper Screen International and that was just it was a mixture of pure luck and I don't know what else, I guess I guess a little bit of, of nous. But essentially, my sister had seen the job advertised in Screen, in, in Screen International when she was working at, at Paramount on Wardour Street. And she said, you ought to apply for this. I just finished the course. I applied for this job. And the late, great Peter King, the publisher of the paper who uh, I who passed away a couple of years ago, wonderful man. He basically gave me the job because I knew a hell of a lot about films at 19 or whatever, but I was so cheap. I remember that he did the calculation twice to work out how little he was going to pay me for the year. And it literally was like that scene in, in uh, I think it's in What's New Pussycat and Woody Allen's working in the Folly Berger and someone says, what's the money? And he says, it's a franc a night. And they go, that's not very much. And he says, that's all I could afford. And it's like, I would have paid yeah. to do this this job or it's worth a million lira yeah <laughs> exactly so but so what an interesting start so I got so I started at 19 on screen and I did that for 
seven years or whatever, and then I was asked to run the development fund for what is now the BFI. It was called something else at the time. And then that just led from there to kind of being a consultant to the bigger company. And then Miramax and everything. Yeah, I worked for David Putnam. I worked for Miramax for years. Weinstein, but we won't go into all this now unless you want to. Definitely won't go. No, no, no. You know, you've done, well, I'm sure you've just done so much. And uh, it must have been a dream for you to, to, to work with some of these people and just look around thinking, well, it was unreal. I, I would sit in the cutting room with, with uh, Scorsese when, when we did Gangs in New York, which is a film I worked on for nearly nearly three years. I was on that from the time I read the script. We, we acquired the script to working on the script to going to Rome, where we built the sets, quarter of a square mile on the back of Chinachita Studios, to staying for eight months when we were shooting it, to a year in post-production. I mean, an incredible thing. But there was one day I was sitting in his cutting room under a poster for Mean Streets. He's great early film uh, and the poster was from the Academy Cinema on Oxford Street which is where I'd seen the film when I was like 14 or whatever and I remember sitting there thinking how did a kid from Croydon get here but I think we all have that to some degree it's like that you know it's a version of what they call imposter syndrome that sense that you kind of should you really be here and when and when are they going to find out about us yeah, and tell us to move on yeah we don't know what the hell we're exactly. doing yeah. oh that's that's it. That, that's rife in the arts and everywhere. I it's think. everywhere. We, we all feel we're busking from day to day. I, I told this once to an you know, Academy-winning winning director, Oscar-winning director, and I was telling him, it was, it was, in fact, the great Alan Parker who'd said it, who'd said it to me. Alan said there wasn't a day that went by. There's a man who made Bugsy Malone, Midnight Express, mm. Shoot the Moon, you know, Vita, brilliant, brilliant movies. He said every day on the set, he was just sit there, and at one moment during the day, he'd go, Someone's just about to tap me on the shoulder and go, sorry, son, back to Islington. We found you out. <laughs> Did you, do you think Scorsese felt that himself? Because I remember talking to you recently and you said that he had a similar thing, you know, upbringing to, not upbringing to you, where he was a, a, a shy kid. And well, he, well, what he was, I was a big... You know, how'd you find I him? was a big, fat kid who, who kind of didn't like sports, and he was an asthmatic kid who didn't like sports. And so what we found when we met... I'd met him, I'd interviewed him for screen. I've got, like, somewhere a very long, rattling tape from the time he did um, Raging Bull. But I, I only worked with him for the first time on Gangs of New York, and we got on like a house on fire. Because I mean, we got on with some difficulty because I was the interim person between him and Harvey Weinstein, and obviously Harvey was kind of a bully and pushing to get things done. And I was the and Harvey was no full Harvey. And he always employed people around him who could um, put things across in a slightly more elegant manner. I think he always loved mm -hmm. the fact that I had an English accent that somehow that took the edge off what what. I was being asked yeah. to do for him. But Scorsese understood that. He knew what the rules of the game of that were, the way that we would communicate. But the biggest thing was that he knew that I loved movies and I loved his movies and I understood what we were trying to do yeah. with the film. So, but we had a fantastic base to work off, which is we were both such nerds about movies. Yeah. Although, as I always say to people, the difference between us, to give one obscure example, is that I knew I knew that the director of a British horror film called Horrors of the Black Museum is a guy called Arthur Crabtree, uh, and I could tell you some of the other films that he directed. Scorsese's seen them all. He's seen everything. I yeah, mean, it's like that. He just he just like like an anorak, a new new yeah yeah. yeah. It's amazing because his his you know when you when I'm speaking to you about him, those movies are my all my favourites: Taxi Driver, Raging Fantastic. Bull, Mean Streets, even up to The Irishman. Because what I love about it is every 
movie he makes has a thread through it that's unmistakably him, mm -hmm. which is true art. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same with music. It's his stamp, and it's so... It's totally about it's him. So They're all very Catholic, for one thing. I mean, it's funny. I think the, he made that film Silence, which I didn't like so much, which I thought was very on the nose about its religious elements or whatever. And funny enough, the, the, I think The Irishman is, is a much more religious film than that because it's very much about the absence of God in someone's life and their searching for God and searching for those things. Yeah. And it has a very Catholic text to it, which of course the great films like Mean Streets has yes. as well. Running through it with that, it's just, just, just what you're, you know, it's fascinating what you're saying because we were a lot of the people you mentioned are people that I hold in like real high respect, like guy, uh, Stephen Graham, oh, the guy that played Al, Al Capone. I'm just watching him now in, again, well, my oh. third go, go through Boardwalk Empire, well, he and was, the guy's marvelous. Well, he um, was fabulous. So, Scorsese had a brilliant, has a brilliant casting director called Ellen Lewis, American, and she loves British actors. And one of the things she really loves is, uh, which Scorsese likes, is that if he's making a film, he's done two films sort of set around the, this time frame in New York. One is um, Age of Innocence and one is Gangs in New York. And they're a fascinating double bill because one's what's going on uptown with the posh people yeah. and one's what's happening downtown. But in both cases, he fills them with English actors because he had a view that since it was only 1776 or whatever that they suddenly acquired, you know, that they're independent or whatever. It's only a, it's, it's, le it's about 100 years after that. Most accents would probably still have a strong trace of the British underneath. Sure, or they Irish, have been like or whatever. what we're hearing now. Yeah. So he loved yeah. that. But what was important in Gangs in New York was to find, obviously, it was set that, that, that it's about the Irish immigrants. Mm. So they had to find strong Irish actor or people that could do that. And Ellen actually saw Stephen Graham in Snatch where he was playing a cockney but yeah. loved his energy or whatever and of course finds out that he's actually from Liverpool and so immediately is interested so he and I met on that film and he's actually been as far as I apart from that he's a wonderful man he's a wonderful friend but to me he's like a bit of good luck for me I mean I, I, I did not want anyone else other than him to play the brother in Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool it had to be Steve and otherwise I don't even know we probably would have pushed the film back a bit if we could get amazing. him that's amazing because he's really become one of my... Since I saw him in Boardwalk as, as Al Capone, and then I revisited him back in Snatch and things like that. Yeah. At the time, I didn't know who he was. Ooh. But he was also... You talk about the, the, the uh, casting to play, you know, Irish and whatever. He's an amazing gang. He, in The Irishman, he's Tony Pro. Oh, no, he's He just incredible. plays fantastic, but convincing. Scorsese just, got, just gets great actors, and he, and he fell in love with Stephen on Gangs of New York, and he asked him to... He, he requested him to be Al Capone yeah. in, in Boardwalk, and he wanted him really badly for the Irishman and he had to read with De Niro and go through yeah. this kind of test and at the end he tells the story himself he says at the end of the, the thing they say you know that De Niro says okay kid well we'll be in touch he goes what do you mean be in touch I've got to know whether I'm doing this or not now <laughs> <laughs> he's so intimidating. no I think this, it's, it's, it's a, this is England I mean he was amazing yeah. that. He's, the virtues he's an incredible he, he really is one of the new world class yeah. actor and, and, and just before because I wanted to say just before we, 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 we kind of wrap I'd love to speak for two hours but we're going to run out of time no. but the point is you, you were mentioned uh, just before we go into one of your recent ones the film stars um, Die in Liverpool which we, I watched with, with Rebecca with my wife which is amazing I just was uh, another one of my heroes is Jared Harris I think he's oh, amazing he's in Mad Men as, as uh, Lane Price 
it's just uh, the, the the fantastic awkward way in, in this. It's, it's amazing. And he's another one of your. No, but Jared your pals. is Jared is a really good friend. We we bonded forever. You often bond on the worst experiences, and we made a very a poor benighted little film called Bee Monkey in the in the nineties, um, which he plays the lead in. And we just it was it was a very difficult film. Everybody wanted a different film out of it. The director came up to me one day and said, Colin, do you know what the definition of a camel is? And I said, no. And he said, a camel is a racehorse designed by a committee and we're making a camel because everyone had a different view of what they wanted to do. But what often happens is you come out of those bad experiences and you're really bonded. And Jared is one of the really one of the great people in my life. He's just such a fabulous person. And I followed from that point on, you know, I, I saw him in plays in New York. I saw him, you know, he's a friend in Los Angeles that we're working on a project together yeah. at the moment about his father. Oh, fantastic. And yeah. yeah. So, so he, he's a really special person. So I've been very lucky that I've worked with some wonderful actors and actors that have remained good friends. And even the ones that you can't say are good friends or whatever. The nice thing is, like, somebody like DiCaprio, when he comes to London, that I always see him when he comes out and we pick yeah. up the conversation where we left it off, you know, that well, was that's 20 almost, years that's ago almost now. like a true, a true friend when you haven't seen it yes. for a while and it, there's no awkwardness or barriers. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. But just, just uh, what's the... Uh, just mention, talk, talk a bit about the, the film stars don't die in Liverpool because I loved that with Annette Bennett. Yes, you yes. and McGregor, wasn't it? And it uh, no, it, no, it was Jamie it, Bell. Was, Jamie Bell, sorry. It was wonderful. Well, that was a project. This is this is just the classic story of the film industry. I read that book in 1985. I was at Columbia Pictures at the time. They developed a script. I wasn't involved with it, which didn't work out. But I always loved it. And when I and in, I came back to it in 2010 when I was coming back from LA, uh, and I thought this is a project that's never been made. It's, it should be made. It's a beautiful story. And I remember when you were talking about it. You know, when I first met you. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, you were yeah. talking about um, making. And, yeah. and Annette Benning had always been interested in playing that part but she was too young when Barbara Rockley who oh, was who, yeah. who wanted to make the film as well that we kept, we got together to do it together that, that Annette was kind of too young then she hit the right sort of age for it and then we got very lucky that Jamie Bell really was passionate about playing the other main role and he really chased us to do it and I thought he was absolutely brilliant I thought it was like the moment where Jamie really mm. blossomed into an adult actor in a way but it was a tale was a, you know we made it with very little money but a great director Paul McGuigan who did Sherlock it's, on TV it's a great and movie. so on we, lo we loved it you know it's, an, it's one that you can watch again and then get something else from well, well, I, well, all I would say is that anything that I do I hope that it make, it moves people because that's what I think cinema is, the, is you know, Samuel Fuller the director very famously had this long quote about what cinema should be you know war it could be action but blah, 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 in one word emotion and I think that that's what I would hope to do that any story I tell I hope touches people makes them laugh makes them cry does something because if you ain't got that it's just wallpaper in the background yeah, yeah. it's just amazing now what you've you know, it's been so so interesting but just just final couple of things what, what's your uh, and I hate this when people ask me no, no, sure. what's, what's next well I yeah. often say I don't fucking know what have you got in the pipeline I know it's tough at the moment with all this lockdown we don't want to go into this because we've been into it but what's your I've actually been lucky in as much as that I've just executive produced um, a film for Netflix which Sandra Bullock stars in which we shot in Canada this year and Netflix were very keen to keep it going because they had a big success with her with this project Bird Box so that will come out next year that's a thriller but it's a remake actually of a very very good British TV show from about 12 years ago called Unforgiven 
Um, it's not called that now. We, 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 it's called Untitled Sandra Bullock Project at the moment. But <laughs> yeah. that will come out next year, and I, and I think that's going to be a very it's got a fantastic cast. I think it's going to be a great, great, interesting female-driven thriller. And then I'm working on a project about Marianne Faithful, which of course has a big Soho connection because she lived on a wall in St. Anne's Court when she was in her really bad drug phase. Wow, yeah. um, and I've got a brilliant young actress, Lucy Boynton, who I first worked with when she played little Rennie Zellweger in a film called Miss Potter uh, about, God knows, 20, over 20 years ago, something like that. Anyway, she's fabulous. She's playing Marianne and uh, we're slowly putting the pieces together on that at the moment. Uh, and then... I'm, I'm just working on a lot of different things. I've got to have a film about... I don't know why. Suddenly I seem to be becoming the kind of... the, the go-to person for female rock star biopics. But uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm developing another project which I was asked to come on to about Courtney Love, who unbeknownst to me and probably most other people um, had this very very awful sort of childhood and came looking for her father in Ireland when she was 16 and ended up in Liverpool where she found families of a different kind with all those bands at the time like Echo and the Bunnymen and the Teardrop Explodes or whatever and it's really how Courtney Love became Courtney Love and that's a, I'm excited by that because one it will mean going back to Liverpool to work there and I loved being in Liverpool, we adored being there and number two it's going to be something that's uh, <laughs> Don't worry, mate. It's one not, of our Soho mates that, passing by. Seth the dog walker walking by with about. <laughs> we're keeping it real, so we're not editing any. But it sounds amazing, mate, and I can't wait to see these these, these ones. What you're. you're you, you, you oh, no, the one, the one I will plug hard as well, which is going to be really fantastic, is the the writer of that wonderful show, Marvelous, this is Maisel, um, Amy Sherman oh, Palladino. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's due to deliver, in the next week or so, her script for something called The Fabulous Palm Springs Follies, which is a film I've been trying to make for years. True story of a show that ran in Palm Springs for 23 years, where the average age of the cast was 70. And it's a wonderfully funny marvellous kind of story and she is so brilliant as the writer director for it if you see that if you know her TV show you know that she's absolutely going to get the right tone and style so that's something for Lionsgate which um, I hope will go next year so I feel like I've got a lot of interesting good stuff yeah. going on I've got which is so important in this time you know to keep keep. but mate it's been just finally I want to ask you because uh, <laughs> Colin you, you know you've been a fantastic guest and I haven't had to it's, there's been no awkward silences because you've you've got so well, many motor we, well, That's we what do, it's called. Well, we could do a part two without a doubt, right? Yeah. But, but just finally, right, as we're, we're pals and you've said all these fantastic, interesting things that I, I know that the listeners of this podcast will love, but what do you get out of cigars? It's just a complete, <laughs> complete interesting question at the end. What, isn't, it, isn't it a strange thing? I, I kind of like, I remember, I, I had the same experience most people have had, which was probably when I was about five, there was one sort of in, in my dad's house. I, in my dad's house, and I was kind of, and I... And I opened it up and, uh, and, and lit it up and promptly, you know, was sick everywhere. Kind of, what, the, <laughs> what the hell was I doing? And that was the end of it. I never wanted to touch cigars ever again. And then I was out raising money as an independent person. And every financier that I talked to said, have a cigar, have a cigar. And I'm going, no, 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 no. And one day I made the fatal mistake of having what was smoking Monte Cristo number four. And it was like... Don't inhale, just take the smoke in your mouth, just enjoy that. And it was like one of those terrible road to Damascus discoveries of kind of like, this is so delicious. 
and obviously what we get is we get the high from the nicotine or whatever but it's really the flavour thing that, 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 that's important but the biggest thing of the lot is nothing to do with um, it's, it's not even it sounds, this is going to sound the weirdest thing it's not even to do with the smoking itself it's the people you smoke with Absolutely. It's, a, it's like a community you can't rush in and out of um, yeah. you can't rush in and out of uh, having a, like with a ciggy you run, you run out on the terrace you smoke and you run in again you're committed with a cigar and I'm sorry if I, this, I'll tell you one, one story I'll tell it as quickly as I can when I was in Israel I was in a little village and it was a famous restaurant that was run by a Palestinian uh, woman and an Israeli guy and it was sort of like you know all held up as this sort of shining example anyway the village it was in had had pretty good relationships between the Arabs and, and, and the Jews up till the six day war and then it went, like, went, went to ship and there were there were two guys there was an Arab guy and there was a Jewish guy and they both loved this restaurant but if they would never go in on the same day and this had gone on for years and years and years and one day they accidentally came in together and before they could leave the owner said stop you're not going anywhere I've got a humidor in the basement you're both going to have a cigar on my dime you're going to sit outside and you're going to resolve because it was a dispute over land as it often is in Israel and they sat down they smoked the cigars and became best friends isn't that amazing so let's end this on the power of cigars for world peace Colin exactly thank you very much mate it's been so fantastic to see you and uh, and, uh, thank you for doing this you're very welcome take care bye bye Thank <laughs> you.